Good morning, Reach Montreal. It's actually so glad, I'm so glad to see each one of you here today. Uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, preach and share the word with you this morning. Uh, welcome to those who are watching on the live stream. Um, it's just so glad, I'm just so glad to be able to, you know, take the mask off, engage with people and just enjoy uh, company. I'm, I probably shared this the last time I was here. I'm a big extrovert, so this energizes me like you wouldn't believe. Um, COVID's hard. Pray for us, as I've probably asked in the past. Um, I am a pastor at uh, Church 21 Montreal in the West Island. Uh, I help Jeff uh, uh, care for and shepherd uh, that church. I'm also a, a certified biblical counselor. So I full-time now, no longer working for a secular company, but I now counsel full-time. And uh, so if that's something that you need, let me know and uh, we can talk. Uh, so I'm here for that. Uh, so today, um, I just wanted to, we're going to preach about Mark in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Um, and uh, so I'm going to read that, and then we'll get started. Uh, Mark chapter 7, 1 to 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they, came, they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples walk according to the tradition? Why, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, there are, all, there are you also without understanding. Do you not see what, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Let me just pray for us real quick. Father, we, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that um, you are a good God and that you, you desire for us to have relationship with you. That you desire for us to have a new heart uh, that is governed by the spirit so that we can live in obedience to you. 
Lord, I, pr I pray today that as we hear your word, that we are challenged not to make rules of things that don't exist and, and commit folks' consciences to things that they are free to engage in, that they can live freely in obedience to you, Lord. Lord, change our hearts today. Let us cast off all the shame that comes with all of the, the tumult inside our hearts about what should we do, what we ought to do, what we want others to do, and that we can live guided by your spirit and freedom and love and, and the shame is gone as we behold you and, and love you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we live in suburbia, right? Hang on, just a water real quick. So yeah, we live in suburbia, and I've seen this a lot. And it's something that actually kind of bugs me. Um, so I used to take the bus every day, and I used to see a guy's, he, he had a house on the corner of a street. You can imagine, like, this, this building is on the corner of a street. And, and there's this lawn, right? And oh, we love our lawns, don't we? They're the grass. Can you imagine there's places in North America, like Arizona, they don't even have grass. And if they do, it costs a lot of money because they have to water it like all the time. But there's some people who just don't have grass, right? Can you imagine what that means to not have grass? Anyway, um, that's not my point is whether to have grass or not. But they have this grass and sometimes it's located on a corner. And because it's on a corner and because people are lazy, they like to kind of cut through your yard, Right? Annoying, isn't it? Like, oh, why are they cutting through my yard? They're ruining my grass. So what do we do? We set up these, these like fences. Sometimes they're nice, pretty fences, but what I've seen people do is put these little like ropes. They tie them on a tree and then they tie them to the bush and then they, they put a picket in the, in, the, in the ground and they end up putting up this ugly like rope fence to keep people from going in. Right? They, they're creating this barrier, this boundary to prevent somebody from doing something that they don't want them to do. Why? Because it makes their grass ugly. Right? And that's like an amazing, it's not an exaggeration, I've seen that happen. That, but the more cleaner way of doing that is we put a sign that says, keep off the grass. I'm not going to lie to you, I think that's the ugliest thing in the world. When I, when I have a sign on the grass to tell you to stay off the grass, it looks worse than if I just let people stay, walk over the grass. It's so, it's so, it looks ridiculous in my mind. Now, if you've done this, I'm sorry if I'm criticizing you. It's just, like, it's just one of those things. I'm like, well, the sign looks worse to me, right? And so... We're, we're looking at that in our scripture passage today. We're looking at the ways that we set up boundaries around something that we're trying to achieve. Uh, in this case, uh, Israel, the, the, the Jewish people were trying to achieve this, um, this outward spirit, not spiritual, I should say, this kind of outward cleanness before God because it was part of their identity. And... Um, and the, the problem is that some of the things that they were doing make them look ugly. Make it, uh, it actually goes up against the word of God and then sets them up for, uh, for, for disobedience to God. And they didn't even realize it or if they realized it, they didn't care, right? And, and what it also does is it, as the people who are striving to obey these laws, what does is it brings shame and guilt on them unnecessarily. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how when we do these things, it also does that for us. Uh, so verse 1, when the Pharisees gathered to him, Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So the, the Pharisees and the scribes came. Now, in, like back in chapter 3, I think that's... Maybe the last time, chapter 4, when I preached, uh, I'm not sure, uh, maybe chapter 2. Anyway, the scribes and the Pharisees were there, right? But they are the local guys, okay? Now we see that the guys from Jerusalem are coming. These are the big guns. These are the, 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 they're upset. The people in Jerusalem have now heard about what Jesus is doing, and they want to investigate and see what kind of trouble he's causing. And so they come from Jerusalem. 
They saw, they, the Pharisees, saw, this is verse 2, that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Uh, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Dining couches. That one still gets me. Tried to look it up, and I need to be looking really far to figure out what, why dining couches. But anyway, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's a tradition. That's not ours, so I don't need to wash my dining couch. Uh, from, time, from the time of Moses, right, the priest uh, who served in the tabernacle had to be ceremonially clean. These rituals to wash and bathe, that they were for them so that they could serve, right? They needed to uh, approach God in their worship ceremonially clean, right? In their hearts too, but a lot of the focus for, uh, for these folks is, is the outward of signs and appearances. The, the Bible, though, did say that you must do this. So they were commanded to do this. Um, and beyond that, though, they, what they did was they extended this requirement for the priests to serve in the tabernacle, in, in the temple, uh, to everyone. Because they wanted everybody to be ceremonially clean. It was part of the identity of of the Jews, right? It was part of their identity, tying them to the tabernacle and service in the tabernacle. Um, And the truth is that there were so many rules and laws that that the that the, um, the the Jewish leaders had set up, that the rabbis had set up, that it, everybody was considered unclean. You were actually by default considered not clean until you ceremonially cleaned yourself. So this is why they said, well, you, you know, before you eat, you gotta you gotta wash your hands. And uh, so these they were mostly for the people who served in the tabernacle, but they extended to everyone. Um, and the irony is not lost on us today, right? Like we are living in the midst of a pandemic and we're thinking about clean, right? We're all thinking about, oh, I don't know, maybe all of you are. In my house, we are obsessed with clean. We wash groceries. Man, what a pain. I hate washing groceries, right? It's ridiculous. I think I'm like, why are we wiping this down? And like some of my wife, well, they say, you know, you, you know, there could be COVID on it. Like, I don't know. Is there? I don't know. I'm sorry. I just, like, I'm a bit COVID weary with all of this stuff, but we're doing that, right? And it's not so, but there is something good about what we're doing, right? We, we need to wash our hands now because it helps uh, prevent the transmission of germs. We're wearing masks. All of these things is very present in our mind right now. And so washing in our context today, we're like, yeah, this is a good thing. The Pharisees knew where it was at. This is really cool because they were probably preventing disease. But the truth is this text is not about actually being clean like that. It's not actually the the, the amount of water that they used could probably fill this little cap here. I'm going to drink this, by the way. But they used very little water. It was a symbolic thing. There was no pretense that once they did the ceremonial washing of their hands before eating meals, that their hands were clean and that they still weren't carrying outside germs or something that some communicable disease. They couldn't, if they were doing what they were doing then, now to prevent COVID, it would be worse. Things would be worse, okay? So it's not about being clean. It's a ceremonially clean act. It's something that they do just in practice. Good, I'm clean. I've done my thing. I've checked that box and now I can move on to eating. And so it's a focus on what's defiled and not defiled. Leviticus 10.10 says that you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. Holy, defiled, and common, meaning unclean, uh, between the clean and unclean, as it says in Leviticus 10.10. So holy means to be set apart, and defiled or common means not set apart. 
right? So generally speaking, you're like, well, I guess that means we're all common. Yeah, we're all common and we're not all set apart, though we would say as Christians that because we, because of Jesus, we are now set apart, but we'll talk about that. The religious leaders of the day were working hard uh, to make sure that the, there was purity amongst the Jewish people uh, that could remain intact. So they put a lot of rules in place to, to, um, to, to enforce that. The identity of the people, as I said before, was rooted in their religious observances and their relation to the temple, and that's what set them apart. And Jesus, sorry, and, and then it says in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You hear the language here that they're using. They're saying, why do your disciples, they're talking to Jesus, right, but publicly. It wasn't like they took him aside and said, look, Jesus, we need to talk to you. Like, we think this is wrong. Why don't we, why don't, they, there was no actual desire to, to enter in relationship with Jesus and try to find out why they were, he was doing uh, what he was doing. They just came, they observed something, and they accused him publicly. And they said, why do your disciples, these guys are your responsibility, you're leading them, you're their rabbi, you're teaching them, and you're teaching them wrong. And Jesus responds. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their hearts is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men so what Jesus is saying here is that when we hold people to rules that are not God's commandments, this becomes legalism, idolatry. Jesus is saying that the truth is that there was a commandment for certain people to wash, to ceremonially wash before they served in the temple and by extending it to everyone because they wanted to have this identity, Jesus was saying, no, you're you're, you're, you're adding rules to, to the word of God that, shouldn't, that do not exist. And when we do that, when we, when, we create these, um, when we create these rules upon rules, it's legalism and it's idolatry. It says that God's name and God, sorry, God's word and his name are not sufficient. What God said isn't sufficient, so I need to add to it so that we don't break God's law. And when we bind a person's conscience to these rules, or even secondary rules, even in our church, right? Uh, secondary, secondary issues in scripture, this is legalism. We can imagine what some of those things might be. But whatever they are, and I could go on all day about little different things that we create in our own minds and hearts that, are, that could be legalism, what we do is we move off of the gospel, which is the most important thing. We look for and hold people to outward signs without knowing what's in the heart. It's the outward stuff that we focus on and we don't actually enter into relationship with a person to find out what's going on inside their heart like the Pharisees did. It, it becomes a Jesus plus thing. Right? We say we're Christian, but ah, this thing that you're doing, I don't know, you know, you're wearing lipstick. I think that's not, that's not Christian to doll yourself up and wear lipstick or even a guy wearing lipstick. What's that? You know, like we get all bent, right? I'm not trying to say anything there. What I'm just trying to say is that we, we look for these outward signs and we rely probably too heavily upon them to judge whether someone else is living the Christian life without actually approaching them and saying, hey, what's going on here? Faith alone in Jesus does not include your preferred observances or your, your pet doctrines, right? I mean, we want to hold true to and faithful to scripture. We want scripture to inform us. We want scripture to guide us. But sometimes we get bent about something that somebody else is just not bent about. And rather than enter into relationship with them and try to understand why, we just accuse and and. We make blanket statements or 
create rules in our church. Sometimes that happens. Uh, like, I don't, I don't like to be overcritical of the Catholic church because I was Catholic and I loved my church back then. I think I did a lot of things because I wanted to, uh, but there was a lot of things I did out of religion. Um, and so if you didn't show up at the church on Sunday, this was a sin that you had to confess before God. Right? They created a rule and they said, you missed church, you sinned. Come to confession and then you'll be absolved of that sin. That's one. There are lots. You know, our Protestant tradition exists because of it in a lot of ways, right? But then Jesus, you can, I can give examples all day, but Jesus actually gives an example himself. So why don't we just look at what Jesus said, right? Probably more important than what I have to say. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So apparently there's a, they did this often. So Jesus was explaining in this idea of Corban, this, this idea that um, if I take my wealth, if I take the things I own and I say they are committed to God committed to the te- in service to the temple, they belong to, to them. So when I die, it all goes to them. That means that I don't have to give it to uh, somebody else. In this case, father or mother. Like in the Jewish tradition back then, even now, uh, they and many cultures take care of their parents. This is a, a normal uh, expectation and, uh, and, and they do so uh, willingly and lovingly. But there was this loophole, right? If you didn't want to take care of your parents, then the, the rabbi said that you could declare something belonging to God and then you wouldn't have to help your parents. Because, nope, sorry, uh, I can't help you because I've given it to the temple. Right? That's what Corbin means, that it's committed uh, or dedicated to God. So it becomes a loophole. It's a workaround. Uh, and then, so then they transgress by doing that, loving their mother and father, honoring them. Um, I'm guilty of looking for a loophole with respect to my mom. I, I, I never remember where I share these things. So if I've said this before, forgive me. My mom... Uh, great lady, she raised us. I've, we've had a difficult relationship. Um, and so out of that difficulty in relationship, I think at one point in my life I rationalized, you know what, she's too difficult. I don't need to, to deal with her. I'm not going to engage with her. And I'm going to walk away. I don't want to take care of her. I don't want to know nothing about her. And then God convicted me in scripture saying that honor your father and mother is not honor your father and mother if they were knocking it out of the park and doing perfect and raising you perfect and perfect parents. Some of us have perfect parents, don't we? Um, anyway, so I was like, yeah, you're right, Lord. It isn't if they're perfect, it's honor your father and mother. So by God's conviction in my own heart, in my heart, out of that I, I said, okay, then I, God, if I have to honor my mom, then you got to show me how. And he's showing me how, right? I had found a loophole and I was willing to live in that loophole, but God was like, no, 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 there's no loopholes here. You got you to gotta do what I'm asking you to do because it's good for you. It's going to give you life, right? The opposite, is, as, as uh, Jesus said, is that if you don't, uh, you will, you'll surely die, right? There's a blessing that's attached to honoring your mother and father. So if you have difficult parents, and it's something that, that's really difficult, I know that there's some people whose parents have abused them, but there's still a way that we can honor them. Right? And if you need to know how to do that, talk to your pastor and navigate through that. I don't say this lightly. I don't say that you have to have like wonderful, huggy relationship with your parents. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a way that we can still honor them. 
And that's a challenge. It's hard. I know because it's hard. I probably didn't have as hard a relationship with my mom as some other people in this room may have. But, the doesn't, but, but honor your father and mother doesn't mean you don't have to do it at all. Right? There's a way. There's a way. And find a wise person to help you navigate that. So if we're looking for, uh, for ways to circumvent God's love for one another, it means to, uh, to circumvent, sorry, our love for God and loving one another, it's, we're looking for loopholes. Loopholes are a lazy way of trying to appear holy. Uh, and if we create legalistic systems in our church and in our, in our cultures, right, when I start forcing you, when I start communicating to you, like right now I encouraged you to honor your father and mother even when it's hard, but I didn't, but note that I said work with somebody on that. Find, get into relationship with somebody and work on it. But if, I, if you just did it to tick off a box, then I'm creating a legalism, Right? I'm saying you have to do this or else, you know? Like, I can't do that. It's lazy for me to do that. It's lazy. So if you said to me after church, hey, I'm having a hard time with this. How can I do this? I'll sit with you. I'll talk with you. Relationship, right, is hard. And it, and it, but relationship allows me to see inside. Uh, and not... And not engaging that way is, is bad and it's not, it's not exercising faith, right? It's legalism. We need to look at how we're trying to circumvent God's word, how we're trying to circumvent what God is calling us to in relationship with one another, uh, in, in relationship with him and say, is that something that I've created a legalism of that some way I've created a loophole to get out of something you have to ask ourselves those questions we have to get with other people and say how am I how am I do how have I done this it's easy to look at what the Pharisees did and say okay that was like religious stuff but we do it with our in our within ourselves we create our own laws and rules I was counseling a young man just the other day um, who um, was struggling and he communicated to me that he, um, he, he doesn't like change, right? And he, in all of his communication, it's almost as if he wanted to set up a rule. You know I don't like change, so therefore do not make, set, set me up for change. But we know change happens every day. It's not in his control. It was, in, it was his desire to control his life rather than allow Jesus to control his life he was creating a rule, a legalism, a loophole, something to prevent him from having to do the hard work of seeing change, turning to God, repent and depend on him for what was happening in his own heart and then not lashing out against parents, father, mother, friends, sister, brother, whoever it is, right? He had, there's work there. There's relationship. So then Jesus continues on. And he's going to talk about this. And he talks about what defiles a person in verse 14. He says, and he called the people to him again and said, hear me. So this happened with the Pharisees. Now he said, hey guys, I'm going to talk to you about this. I'm going to give you a parable. Um, and he says, hear me all of you and understand. You know, he says this a lot. He's like, guys, when he says that, it's like, pay attention. I got something to say. Here comes this little mini parable. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Oh, Jesus, what, the, what are you saying? But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So here's this parable. And what does Jesus mean? And so he saw these people and he perceived that they, his disciples weren't understanding again. And in verse 17, he kind of gathers and he says, okay, guys, you're not getting this. Let's go inside. And so it says, we enter, he entered a house and left the, peop, left the people. And his disciples asked him about the parable. He says, then are you also without understanding? Like we hear this all the time. Jesus is constantly, almost seemingly frustrated with his disciples. It's like, guys, you're not getting this. Like this big sigh. We can almost see Jesus go, again, you guys aren't getting it. So Jesus says, let me explain. 
Verse 18, he continues, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Verse 19, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. This is like amazing, right? This has implications for all sorts of things. This is this parenthetical um, word that Mark brings to us, thus he declares all foods clean. This is kind of like an aside thing, but definitely uh, very important for what we're thinking about today. It's it's Mark is writing to the Jews and Gentiles, right? And they are probably still struggling with the idea of whether or not the food laws applied. Again, it was part of their identity. Um, it works itself out better in Acts later on with Peter's dreams and how Paul challenges them and all of these things. But the hearers of the gospel were probably struggling to let this go. Culture shapes our identity. This is just the way this is. So for the people listening to Mark's gospel, they're like, whoa, like bacon. Maybe it's true we can have bacon. This is really cool. Culture is good. Bacon's good. And can be celebrated. But God also intends to change and redeem culture as well. Some things in our culture are bad and must change. Right? Um, I'm not going to, so I'm, I know I just said bad, good, and I don't want to pit one language against the other, but I know I'm talking to West Islanders. I have lived in Quebec for 42 years. I came to Canada basically in the winter where, like, I'm seven or eight years old, and somebody hands me this no pen and says, You got to wear that. I'm like, what is this? You know, oh, well, you got to vote no. And like, like so I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just trying to give you a narrative of my life here. But so I get this pin. And so I learn what it is to be an Anglophone in Quebec culture. And there's some good things about what that is. But you know, it's weird. Like Christian or not, we have these things that we hold on to that show there's a bitterness in our hearts towards another people, good or bad. There are good reasons why the French want to keep their culture. There are good reasons why the English want to keep their culture, right? But when we use these words, especially as Christians, like, yeah, we always get the short end of the stick. When I hear Christians say that, I'm like, man, you have so much in Christ. What do you care? What do you care? Like, I know that there's pain. I know I'm not insensitive to that. But man... Like, we have so much in Jesus that when we bring those things up, it just makes us seem like spoiled children in front of the people we're trying to appeal to to understand uh, through common sense and understanding, right? I'm just talking about one thing. God's going to redeem that. I'm sure he's going to redeem that, right? I'm sure he's going to redeem that. And faith, faith in Jesus changes our identity, so that we can begin to let go of these things and hold on uh, and, and, and holding on, if we hold on to those parts of our culture that need to change, it actually reveals our distrust in Christ. And we're worried to let it go because we're worried that if we don't control it, it's out of control. Yet we have to allow Jesus to control it. Jesus says this in Matthew 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them in Christ. Our identities are different. They must be different in Jesus because he fulfilled everything. He fulfilled everything. Whatever you think that you lack in your ability to obey God, Jesus fulfilled it. He didn't say, you don't have to do it. He says, but if you can't do it, not to worry, because faith and trust in me means I fulfilled it. But it's the same thing with culture. Whatever we think is lacking in culture, Jesus fulfills it. And so whatever food laws and ceremonial laws that, that, that were alive in, in first century Judaism, um, Jesus fulfilled those. He, whatever they were attempting to do, they were insufficient. Insufficient. Jesus fulfilled them perfectly. He fulfilled the entire law, so the external things no longer have to fulfill us. External things no longer have to complete us. We, can't, we don't have to rely on them for our control. 
He says in verse 20, whatever comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's a long list. A lot of pain in that list. All these things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus changes our focus here on what is outward and what is outside and what is observable, the things that I can punish other people for and criticize other people for, and to what is in the heart. He says, I want to know what's going on in the heart. And for some of us, that's going to be a challenge. We have a tendency to blame outside circumstances for our sin. I was actually, when I was preparing for this, I was like surprised. I was even thinking, yeah, really culturally, we always look at what's external, right? Everything that's to do with what we see from the outside that, that, that we think, oh, well, that has to change, right? Like I talked about the English-French situation. We're like, unless that changes, then I'm not happy, right? Like we look at life circumstances and we always blame life circumstances for the way we believe and behave. We look at our church and we say, this is wrong. I don't like this. And so, and we, and we hurt and we injure we look within our marriage. It's constant. I know I brought this up the last time. But no married couple comes to me and says, yep, I, uh, I'm the one in this marriage that sucks and I want to change. Nope. It's always this person, this person, this person. We, and then we tend to bind people to these external expectations to, dis- to satisfy our desires for things to be different. Uh, I, I'm always in counseling bringing up James 4 where what, why, why are there quarrels among you? It's because of the things that you desire that become, go from I would like to have this or I think this should be this way to it must be this way. Why? Because suddenly I'm the arbiter of what's good and what's right and what's perfect and James says we must humble ourselves and see God and he's the one who's going to show us what's good right and perfect just some of the externals again that we see right um, people if you talk to just run-of-the-mill Joe like, hey man why why do you watch pornography and he's me like well it's cool I like it there's nothing wrong with it it's cool he has it's like it's this external like it's good for me I want to do this right food I'm a guy who struggles with food, okay? It's a constant struggle. And a lot of these things that I'm preaching here today around food are the things that I struggle with, right? A lot of shame and guilt and anger come around those things, right? I'm not a small guy. I, I know it, right? And, I, and I'm aware of it painfully every time I pick up a bite to eat. It's, but I look at it from the outside, but it's actually what's going on in the inside, Pain, the way we inflict pain uh, to others, it's how, or how others inflict pain on us, right? Yes, people are hurtful to us, but it's what we do inside of our hearts that's the, the problem with pain. And the external things, when we see them, we bring a lot of shame to them. And that shame, regardless of whether it's sin or the way we ought to be or the way we ought to act, it causes internal pain and we act out of that and we say that our circumstances caused us to do the things that we do and we hurt others and we, and we get angry with others and we, and, we, and we manipulate others and try to control others and we create laws and legalisms and traditions that we try to make sure people don't break so that we don't get hurt. But Jesus says it's what's in the heart that causes us to sin. You sin, newsflash, because you want to. You sin because you want to. Temptation is just the occasion to sin. Because if you do it, it's something that's already happening in your own heart. And if we view sin as an external problem and something that's out there, we're always going to treat it externally, like moralism. We're going to create moralistic uh, rules and regulations and we're going to always look for behavior change. Anybody who has kids here knows 
that behavior change is a, is a losing battle. It's about them wanting to desire to do the right things out of their own heart. If we begin to see that sin originates from what I love, then we begin to understand and treat the issue the way God sees it. I do what I love. If I love God, I will obey him. If I love something else, I will make myself a slave to it. Paul says in Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present worship, love yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, if you love sin, that's me parenthetically if you love sin, which leads to death, or obedience if you love God, which leads to righteousness. Submitting ourselves to sin that is worshiping in the flesh makes us slaves to these things. And Jesus says, there, he makes us slave to evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. I don't have to explain these things to you, right? You guys know what they all are because you're very familiar with them because each one of you, including myself, have found ways to love them. Pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within and defile a person, right? But remember, just, like as the heaviness of those sins and those things that beset us are within us and we struggle with them, remember Matthew 5, 17, Jesus fulfilled them. Jesus promises that through faith and trust in him, he he cancels the debt and the guilt that's associated with those things because he makes us righteous and he makes us clean. And if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're going to have new hearts, like it says in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This idea of cleanliness, right? And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. That's what we're talking about today. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. So you see, you don't have to go and do ritual things to cleanse yourself from sin. Jesus, or God, through Ezekiel, is promising that he's going to do it for you. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Amazing. God talked about this way back before Jesus showed up physically. Jesus was present always. In Christ, we receive the new heart, uh, this new heart, and it's the Holy Spirit that helps us obey. And it changes our identity. It's not, we don't become people who do not sin. No, that's not our new identity. It's not the point. And God's, we become the people of God. We become followers of Jesus. That's our identity. We become sons and daughters of God. That's our identity. That's who we are. Verse 22 in Ezekiel says, I will put my spirit within you. It says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for, sorry, Roll back. Ezekiel says that God will put his spirit in us and guide us. But then he also says that it's not going to be for our righteousness or for our goodness, right? For us being good. It's not going to be for our identity of being people who do not sin. It's actually for a greater good. It says in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. Right? It's not all about you, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Right? The Pharisees made it about them and about their identity. And we make it about us and our identity. But God says, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations for which you came. God's going to put a new heart in us and give us his spirit for his holy name. In the garden when we rebelled against God, it isn't that they, like a car accident, you know, you both like, you know, talk about no fault insurance and whatever, probably off topic, but 
we, we get into a car accident and we're like, oh, there's these two people that, that had an accident. You had damage, you had damage. And we care about everybody in, in the car accident. But in, uh, and we treat um, sometimes, and I've heard people with their theologies and the way they teach even about sin and everything, that somehow in the garden there are two uh, injured parties in the garden. That God was offended, but man was somehow broken and offended, and we have to care about that somehow in a weird way. It was God's name that was belittled in the garden, in our rebellion. It was him. It was God's name that was profaned. And in order to fix that, God has to give us a new heart so that we can be his people and be identified by his righteousness, not our own. It was impugned to us, means it was given to us, so it's not our goodness or our ability to be good, but his self-righteousness. Remember, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus fulfilled it. It was for him and his great name. And he gives us his spirit, like it said in verse 27 of Isaiah, to do this. We don't actually have to concern ourselves with defilement if we're in Christ. Because in Christ, we are made clean. And I know for some of you that's hard to hear because I do a lot of counseling and care and there's a lot of shame that comes with pain and suffering and sin. From the sin you've done or the sin done to you, you feel a deep sense of shame. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he bore all your shame. And you don't have to bear it anymore. He wiped it clean. And, he is, and in him, you are made new. This is true. Jesus did this for you. And I pray that this comforts you. Jesus alone and not your behavior make you clean. So we must trust in his complete work and in his righteousness and in his holiness. And we need to rest in Jesus alone. And he's sanctifying us all the time, it says in, in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you, right? When we talk about working our salvation and fear, out our salvation in fear and trembling, it says, for it is God who works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. It's for him. He works it out in us by his spirit that he does this. It's in worshiping Jesus that we are transformed. And we worship Jesus by staying rooted in his word. So instead of all of those things and those sins and those things that we can do, if I, we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he makes us clean. I've been play, my, I'm going to close with this. I've been doing my devotionals in Psalm 119, and I'm always, there's a juxtaposition in my heart versus what is written in the word. There's things that are true, and I'm like, yeah, but that's not true of me. But Jesus reminds me that he fulfills it. Jesus reminds me that he can do only what he can do that I cannot do. He does, which is everything, Right? But then we get to pray truths out of Psalm 119 and that can remind us and minister to our hearts. And so I'm going to read this and then I'm gonna close in prayer today uh, with Psalm 119. Not the whole thing. You guys got scared, didn't you? I'm not gonna read the whole thing. We don't have time for that. Uh, Psalm 119, nine to 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. 
Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God and that you um, see your people, the people that you have called to yourself through your son Jesus and you declare us righteousness, righteous because you are righteous. Because our identity is no longer in what we can or cannot do, no longer in the rules that we set up, no longer in our cultures and in, in, in the, in, even in our church cultures and things that we think that we're doing to check off a box, but they are rooted in you, in your goodness, in your great name. And we can turn to you and ask you for help and put our faith and trust in you. Lord, as we contemplate how we can be pure, it's you who make us pure. It's you who wash us of all guilt through the blood of your son, Jesus, on the cross that we no longer have to bear that guilt. And then as you give us new hearts, Lord, that we can be transformed by your word. Repent and worship you. Lord, I thank you that you do all of this in us. It's you, it's your spirit that does all this work in us. That all we have to do is have faith. And then it's out of that faith that you, your presence, will come to us and call to us and change us because your spirit now resides in us. Lord, we're not gonna do it perfectly. We thank you that you fulfill it perfectly for us. Lord, I pray that we, we become a people here today that adopt, adopt a, a, a discipline of constantly returning to your word so that we could know it, so that it could well up inside our hearts and that it can continue to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change this people. Give them grace. Remove their shame. Help them walk as followers of you, Lord Jesus with their heads held high, wearing that helmet of salvation, knowing that they've been rescued and then they no longer have to walk in shame. Lord, help us delight in who you are. Help us see you as most beautiful and most good and most glorious. And Lord, help us constantly raise up your holy name because you are a good God and worthy of our worship and praise. I pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.